0: Mark ten seventeen through 31, as we continue our study of uh, Mark's gospel. Let's hear the breathed out word of God. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. We thank you for the scripture that you have provided for us. <laughs> we see this rich man who comes, who realizes that he is lacking something, and he also gives us uh, amazing thing and says he has kept all the commandments, which is, <coughs> we ask... I should be with Pastor Bob as he explains this scripture to us. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So four main points this morning from this passage. First of all, the man that we meet here. Secondly, the question that the man asks. Thirdly, the response that Jesus gives. And then fourthly, the challenge that is laid before not only the man but the disciples and us as well. So the man, the question, the response and the challenge. What do we learn about this man as the passage opens? We learn that as Jesus, he is the he who is setting out on his journey. So some commentators believe although some think it's the man himself and this is one of the last things the man does. That seems to me to be Kind of an awkward reading of it, but I suppose it could be taken that way. But the man in question that we're looking at this morning ran up. There is an eagerness about this man. The man doesn't just saunter up. The man doesn't casually walk up. The fact that the man ran up to Jesus tells us something about, one, the importance of that which he needs to deal with with Jesus, but his eagerness. He's not being laid back about this issue. And there are many things that when we get to this point later on in the passage where we read this amazing statement that Jesus loved him, we have to step back and say, why is it that Jesus loved him? Well, part of it is this whole scenario, the whole thing. The man being so eager. How many there were, even in Jesus' day, who were not interested. They were not coming. They weren't even coming walking. They had no interest in what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was all about. But this man. This man is eager. But notice not only his eagerness, notice his respect. He ran up and knelt before him. That's an act of respect, it's an act of signifying that he understands Jesus in some way has authority. And as a knight might kneel before the king. As a subject might kneel before their queen. So this man recognizes in Jesus authority. And he's respectful of that authority. Think of how many that we've covered in the Gospel of Mark, come challenging Jesus. Come to confront Jesus. Come with an air of superiority. Come with some sort of note of the fact that we're better than you. We're higher than you. We have more authority than you. But not this man. This man comes and kneels submissive, humble before Jesus. But notice as well, in his respect, what he says. Good teacher. Good teacher. Good rabbi. What had some of the conversations been in the Gospel of Mark? He has the spirit of Beelzebub. He has a demon. This is Joseph's son? We know all about that history of his past. But this man comes not with that air, not with that defiance. He comes with respect, with an address. Good teacher. The third thing I want you to note about the man who is coming here is that he is also accomplished. (coughs) If we go to the, the parallel passage in Luke, Luke 18, verse 18, we read that this man was a ruler. This man also had authority. This man had a position. Now, it's not defined for us exactly what that position was. Was it a position in terms of, like, the city council? Was it a position in terms of, like, the ruler of a synagogue, does it indicate perhaps even a higher position? A ruler perhaps? Is he a member of the Sanhedrin? We don't know. Scripture simply tells us he was a man who was a ruler, meaning he had authority. He was a man who had accomplished something already in life. He is not just an ordinary citizen. He is a man who, Of power. He himself is a man of authority. So the fact that he runs up to Jesus, kneels before Jesus, and addresses Jesus in the way he does, even indicates more of a heart, of a mind, that is coming in humility to Jesus. But if we read the parallel passage as well in Matthew chapter 19, verse 22, we learn something else about this man. We learn he's young. This is a young ruler. This is a man who is a go-getter. You know, throughout the Bible, as we read through, particularly through the book of Proverbs, it seems like those positions of authority, of power, were given to those who were the elders, meaning the elderly, meaning those with the the gray hair, meaning those who who had come to, to some age of life in which supposed wisdom has now been given. This man, however, has become a ruler as a young man. It indicates how perhaps aggressive he is, how much of an achiever he is, he has already, as a young man, made something of his life. And as the passage continues to reveal, even as we have read it, not only is this man accomplished in terms of being a ruler, not only has he done so at a relatively young age, that scripture notes that, but he is also Rich. He has accumulated much. He has achieved. Makes you think of the fact that this guy perhaps has had his picture on some uh, major business publications of the Jewish times. He's the guy who perhaps has written the book, How to Retire at 35 having achieved it all. He has accomplished much. He's no sluggard. He's not a lazy man. He is highly successful. This is the man that Scripture is indicating to us has come to Jesus. And why does he come? Well, look at the text verse 17 all of this all of this background brings us to what must I do to inherit eternal life he's concerned he's concerned about something that is very important in life. In fact, it is the essential question. It is the most important thing that anyone can ask. What about eternal life? How few ever even ask the question? Think of our world, think of our society, think of our culture. How many people out there do you think are asking the question today, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How many people on a Lord's Day morning, let's take that one. On a Lord's Day morning, how many people throughout the entire world are at this moment asking about eternal life? How many, for how many people is that even on their radar screen? How many people even believe in an eternal life? How many people are not living for just this moment, at this precise time? Whatever I want to do. Worship God? No. Serve God? No. He's not even being thought of. It is no wonder that we come to the thing, the line, and Jesus loved him. This man is thinking. We live in a non-thinking world. We live in a non-thinking society. We live in the world of the shrug. People can't even form anymore. I don't know. They just shrug. Because you talk to them about spiritual matters in life, it's like we're the space shuttle because they don't get it because they're so grounded in this world and the things of this world they can't even comprehend or understand spiritual language now for some of you perhaps my age or older You might go, oh, that's really not that bad. No, it is. We have lived with a couple of generations now of people who have been educated not to think. We don't have to think anymore. We don't even have to think about how to prepare our food, do we? We just take it from a refrigerator, put it in a machine, push a button, and we have it made for us. Now on one level, that's wonderful, it's convenient, it's helpful. But you see, it's, it's a picture of our world. Spiritually, doesn't think. This man is concerned. How few ask, How few care, how few are even aware that at the moment of their death they face either eternal life or eternal damnation. This man is concerned. What must I do? The second thing that that question points out is this. He has not found the answer. You don't ask the question if you already know the answer. Meaning, the fact that he is a young, rich ruler has not answered the question. That's pretty perceptive of this guy. Because you see, even the disciples, as we read the passage, are astonished with Jesus' answer. Why? Because in that day, in that society, wealth became the sign of God's blessing on you. If there was one guarantee of the fact that you were saved, it's the fact that you had a wad of cash. You had to be saved if you had the wad of cash. God must be blessing you if you had the wad of cash. That was the thinking. So the disciples are astonished. What? Rich people aren't saved? It's hard for rich. Wait a minute. That goes completely against our culture. Yes, it does. It even goes against the culture of the church because whether or not we admit it or not, we kind of think along that line sometimes. That's what all the, the whole foistering on our church world of the health and wealth gospel is all about. Name it, claim it. Read any one of Joel Osteen's books. It's about, hey, you'll know you're saved when God blesses you with enormous wealth. Look at me. I'm wealthy. I got a jet. I got a buco, billion-dollar house. My wife wears all sorts of jewelry. God must be blessing us. I must be saved. I got it all. And that is pitched throughout the entire world. Doesn't matter if you're a little island off the coast of Africa, doesn't matter if you're a little country in the middle of south of central America. Doesn't matter if you're in Chicago, Dallas or Los Angeles. This is what the church world is being told today. The disciples bought into it. Jewish society bought into it. But this man doesn't. He knows his wealth has not given him eternal life. He knows his being a ruler has not given him eternal life. He knows that being young has not given him eternal life. And so he comes breathlessly to Jesus kneeling at Jesus feet what must I do to be saved it's a good question it's the same question a quaking Philippian jailer asked when it looked like his world Was caving in because of the earthquake. What must I do to be saved? How many Californians do you think are asking that question this morning? God shook their world twice violently. Many think are asking this morning. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man is searching. He has achieved much, but there is emptiness. And he's just hoping, he's just hoping, based upon the the tense, the Greek tense that he's using here, that Jesus will just give him one thing. Just, just tell me the one thing that I must do to inherit eternal life. Thirdly, notice Jesus' response. Picking it up at verse 18. <coughs> <And> Je- <coughs> Excuse me. And Jesus said to him, now, this is interesting. Why do you call me good? You notice how he doesn't answer the guy's question right away? Ah, oh, you got a great question. Let me get to the question. Let me answer the question. He first pauses and says, wait a minute, you made a statement. Your first words, the first, your address. You you ran up to me and said, Good teacher. Jesus' question, why did did you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Ever get a B on your report card? What did that B signify? Good. Wrong. It's a wrong evaluation. Only God is good. Your grade in history of a bee was not good. Only God is good. This is an interesting passage because it reminds me of how we have devalued words in our society. We have so lessened the the words and our use of words that we actually can convince ourselves that we are good people. Isn't that interesting? Well, that, I, I don't understand. You know, that he was such a good person. No, good is God. Only God is good. That's what Jesus said. No one is good but God. Think of this word. Think of the word and, and one of the brothers praying this morning used it so it sparked that in my head this morning. Think of the word awesome. Right, How awesome are your deeds, O Lord. God's work work is awesome. Think of how we use that term. We go on a Ferris wheel ride. Wow, that was awesome. No, it wasn't. Might have been fun. Might have been enjoyable. But it wasn't awesome. That was an awesome vacation. No, it wasn't might have been a nice vacation but it wasn't awesome why because awesome is only that which applies to god only god can do that which is awe-inspiring that which shuts our mouth that's why we sang and read from psalm 145 how unmeasurable are your ways see only god can cause the human mind to go but you see we've trivialized life we've dumbed it down so I can get a B and still be good I can still be God-like and get a B. God's a B. Sometimes God shows up as an A, but most of the time God is a B, good. And I know you're thinking, hey, Bobby, I think maybe you're taking this too far. I don't think so. Not based upon what Jesus says to this guy. He doesn't, the guy's got the question about eternal life. And Jesus is like, hold it, we got to define a term first of all. You came running to me saying I was a good teacher. Did you mean that? Did you really mean the term, the word that you used? The first expression out of your mouth. Do you really see that I am God? Are you really willing to acknowledge that? Are you really willing to look at my face, to hear my words, to see what I am going to do, and to acknowledge that I am God? See, this is where it all comes down to, isn't it? See, this may seem like semantics. But it's really about who is Jesus. If I'm a good teacher, then I am God. It's interesting as well that Jesus doesn't wait for an answer. He just prods. He just puts it before the guy. Are you really willing to hear the answer to your question? Not from a rabbi, not from a teacher, but are you willing to hear God's answer? God, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Note the second thing that Jesus does. He answers the man by asking the man about the commandments. Do you know the commandments? Or he restates the commandments. Listen to what he says. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Now listen to what Jesus lists. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. What must I do to inherit eternal life, God? Do you know the commandments? What about those commandments do not kill. The man responds, These all have I done since my youth. Now we may think, really? Well, the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, writes. Somewhat the same, in regards to the law, I'm blameless. Notice Jesus' silence. The man said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, Loved him. You know what I find remarkable about that answer? is the silence. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 no. (laughs) Wait a minute. Come on. I know you. Right? I've just confirmed to you, I am God. I know it all. I know everything. I know every move you have made. I know every thought you have had. I know every word you have spoken. You're really going to stand before me and say, I have not sinned. All these I have kept. Notice Jesus doesn't refute them. Jesus doesn't say, no, you're a sinner. And I remember when you were 15. I remember how you got, remember that first deal you made, how how you kind of swindled the guy and that put a little extra cash and from that you have built up. I know how you got your power. None of that. He doesn't dispute the man's claim at all. In fact, Jesus loved him. The one who knows all Here's a man say, I have kept these commandments since my youth and Jesus loves him. Jesus isn't arguing Jesus isn't disputing it. Jesus, in fact, is accepting it as his testimony. It is as you have said. Else Jesus, you see, could not be good because goodness cannot tolerate evil. So if the statement is left to stand, Got to think this through. If the statement is left to stand without Jesus, as the holy, pure, good God, without sin, allows the statement to stand, then he is tolerating sin, then he no longer is good. So the only way that this statement can stand is if the man is actually telling the truth. Jesus loved him. But you see that love of seeing this man so eager, so willing, so pursuing that which is so important. Seeing a man In terms of Paul and Noah, who is blameless in his sight. His love compels him to challenge him. The challenge is not there because Jesus doesn't love him. It's because he does. And here is the challenge. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and come follow me. One thing you lack. huh? <laughs> One thing you lack. Not many things you lack. Not multiple things you lack. Remember what the man, the, the, remember what I said about the verb tense that the man uses? He's waiting for the one thing. Here it is. One thing you lack. Let me boil it down for you, rich young man. Let me, let me summarize it for you, you who are blameless according to the law. Let me, let me pin it down. One thing you lack. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. Why is that the one thing for this man? Because you remember, remember the Philippian jailer? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Paul doesn't say, go sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow Jesus. Why to this man is this the response of Jesus? I want you to look back at verse 19. What do you notice about the commandments that Jesus recited? Where are they found? Or you say the Ten Commandments, what part of the Ten Commandments? Second table of the law, aren't they? They're all about Horizontal relationships. In terms of horizontal relationships, the man can say, I am blameless, I have not sinned. What is Jesus doing with his response? He's pointing the man to the first table of the law. How do we know that? Because the response of the man. He's disheartened. A black cloud literally forms over his face. His face drops. A storm cloud continues to hover over his life. He is like, oh, oh, I'm not going to do that. Because you see there was an idol in this man's life. This man's problem was not the second table of the law. This man's problem was the priority of the first table of the law. This man's issue was with God himself. What must I do to be saved? Why is he asking the question? Because he has pursued all of the horizontal means by which that could be accomplished. In his wealth in his power, in his obedience to that second table of the law, he has done all possible. But in regards to his relationship with God, there's something blocking that relationship. And that relationship is his wealth, his idol. Go, sell all that you have. See, it is out of Jesus' love that he looks into this man's life who he knows intimately. He knows the exact amount this man is worth at the moment. And he knows that it is that wealth that is keeping him from his relationship with God. Now before we go on some sort of bandwagon and think, well then, all wealth is wrong. No, because if you follow the passage on, Jesus says, everybody who has left all for my sake shall receive what? More houses, more stuff, more goods. It's not that the stuff is wrong. It's when the stuff, Gets in the way of God. And as one commentator said, sometimes it's the people without stuff who have the most problem with stuff. Because they're always the ones who want more stuff. The ones who have stuff are just enjoying the stuff they have and taking their pleasure in their stuff rather than God, while the people who don't have stuff are just spending their whole life trying to gain stuff. this man's wealth you see stood in the way and notice how vital that is is that just a little Yeah, you get a little less dose of heaven I'm still gonna get there if I've got idols I'll still make it it'll just be a little less but I'll still get through the pearly gates I'll still get eternal life The way Jesus is answering the question is, you better stop thinking that way. The importance of Jesus' response is this. Whatever stands in the way between you and your relationship to God had better be removed. That idol needs to be torn down. That idol needs to be gotten rid of. For that idol is keeping you from eternal life. The man's question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not what must I do to inherit some form of eternal life, some degree of eternal life. The very question of what must I do is I must love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. I cannot love my stuff. Whether it's the wealth and the goods, whether it's the prestige, prestige, whether it's the honor, whether it's the power, whether it's the youngness and fitness, whether it's my abilities and talents, it doesn't matter. Whatever stands in the way of my relationship with God. Go sell it. Give it away. Follow Christ. See, this man's confidence, this man's confidence was in his stuff. And he was unwilling to part with that which stood between him and good God, holy God, pure God. Disciples, who then can be saved? Jesus. With man, it's impossible. Remember the question? What must I do to be saved? The answer is, nothing. God must do it. God must work. And with God, even those who have the dearest idols, by faith through the Spirit, get rid of them and follow Christ. With God, all things are possible. People of God, where is our confidence today? Who are we looking to for that eternal life? Ourselves? Are our gaining it? Are earning it? Our stuff? Our status in this world? Or are we looking to our Lord? Turn with me in your Trinity Psalters, if you would, please, to page 872, 872. It's not scripture, so I'm allowed to change the question, (coughs) but I'd ask you to stand, page 872, stand, please. I'm going to read the question in a different form of Lord's Day 1, but I want you to give, if you would, if you believe, if you know its truth, to answer together. What is your only confidence in life and in death together that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your gift of faith through the work of Your Spirit, which is wrought by grace, that You, that You have turned us away from the idols of this world, so that we can be assured of our salvation. We can have the confidence of our salvation. For it is not in ourselves, it's not in our stuff, but is in Christ and Christ alone. To you belongs the honor, the glory, and the praise forevermore. And God's people say, Amen.